Oh, uh, Bill's gone. What? Hello, I'm here. No, Bill. I'm here. Bill down. Hmm. Bill down. Let's roll. Let's let's do this. Let's roll. So, in the last episode, Bill, uh, I talked a little bit about uh, my dog is a gender video. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a quick item of follow-up I need to bring up, because I had a lot of criticisms, criticisms leveled at me about that title in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it was quite clickbaity. Mm-hmm. Uh, having just said in the Patreon video that I endeavor to not make clickbait videos, so I think... Uh, if these comments were coming from Artifacts fans and not just random uh, people on the internet who come across the video, uh, I feel the need to clarify this to make sure we're all we're all just on the same page. Um, my issue with clickbait, right? Clickbait in and of itself is not a bad thing, I don't think. Uh, clickbait that leads to non-content is a bad thing, like BuzzFeed clickbait and things like that. But I, personally, mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a clickbaity title if that gets people in the door to learn about something cool. Like, if you get them in the door and then make their days a little bit, you know, better because of the thing that you've supplied to them, I think that's okay. And I think a master of this is, is Vsauce, whose videos historically have been really clickbaity. But it didn't matter because you got in the door and then you were kind of like, oh, I, I learned this cool thing about, like, infinities or these paradoxes or that sort of thing um mm-hmm. so i just i just want to clarify that because <laughs> yeah a lot of people are kind of like oh clickbait Edgar, i see clickbait um so that's that's where i stand well, any thoughts um i don't think it was a particularly uh clickbaity title it was kind of like uh what's this about and then it gets explained at the end i mean i didn't think it was like uh as you say the buzzfeed kind of clickbait you know that just totally misrepresents uh, a concept and exaggerates things entirely, the way you see with celebrity news sites, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't. It didn't strike me that way. Yeah, same. And I was actually kind of surprised uh, that there was a bit of pushback uh, for it because I, I do get that it's not a straightforward title, like it's not mm-hmm. grammatical gender. Um, and I was trying to like play with the idea of what grammatical gender was a bit, uh, but. But yeah, but just, I just want to clarify. It's it's. I, I'm not doing the BuzzFeed thing. Um, and if I ever do make a video that has zero content and is has a clickbait title uh, stuck on the front, then please do call me out and unsubscribe and never listen to me again because that's just the death of a content creator. I think. Well, maybe that's a little harsh for the first offense. Oh, no, I think this is a, a one offense and you're out. I mean, like, because you have, <laughs> you have to make a conscious decision not to have content. Do you know what I mean? Like, you have to consciously decide, I'm going to make, this This is going to contain zero information, and I'm going to put a clickbait title on. Like, that's, yeah, no, I, I'm going to hold myself to a one offense standard there. Fair enough. <laughs> um, good, that, that is all I have to follow up uh, from the last time, outside of uh, emails and, and Reddit. Um, have you got anything, or should we crack into the mailroom? Uh, let's crack into the mailroom. Let's do it. All right, emails. Uh, okay, well, we've got one here from Ray Newton, or Raya Newton. I think it's Raya. I think Raya wrote in before. Uh, well, they say long-time listener, first-time feedbacker. Why do I know that name? I think Raya might be a Patreon, patron? Or, yeah, maybe interact with them on Patreon or YouTube or something. This is really weird, talking about Raya as, uh, you know, like, they're they're probably listening. 
And we were like, who is this friend? It's just a friend. It's a very weird dynamic when you when you have like an audience of people and you you talk about them and you don't <laughs> you don't know them like corporeally, but you know them and it's 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 just a, it's it's endlessly fascinating and strange to me. It's it's crazy. Uh, anyhow, anyhow, so they got got an email. What was the email about? Um, so it was to follow up on what we said in the last episode about grammatical gender influencing worldview, mm-hmm. and um. Uh, it said at one point you spoke about how speakers of gendered languages don't tend to think of the objects themselves as belonging to its grammatical gender. However, while they may not do it consciously, grammatical gender actually does influence the way people are likely to see certain objects through association, at least subconsciously. Um, and this is something that I've that I've come across before. This this ties in with the the whole field of linguistic relativity that our language uh, in some way influences our cognition mm-hmm. and this is something I, I was very very interested in for a long time in the last while i've discovered that it's not really taken seriously by a lot of linguists for i, I don't know whatever reason um hmm. so i had I, been under the impression that it wasn't really uh you know a, a viable uh hypothesis and that these studies which i had been familiar with before weren't really um considered that legit anymore now i haven't got the the explanation to back that up i'm not a linguist i just know some linguistic things but uh the, you know it is definitely a, a a concept that is out there um i'm not an expert so it's quite likely that i'm wrong in this but i had been under the impression that it wasn't uh a well-regarded theory at the moment hmm. um but there, there are there are articles and, and studies out there we could probably put some of them in the show notes or something hmm like, it's something that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me, that the way you think would uh, influence your... Or the way, you, the way you speak, the languages you speak, would influence your, your thought. Because I think very verbally. Like, most of the time, I think in words and in language. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, so, that is what, what I was kind of getting at in a yeah. bad way in the last, uh, the mm. last episode. Like, the idea that... Um, German speakers, like they don't, to use German as an example here, they don't view a dog as being inherently masculine, uh, but they will, but I think they can't help but view the dog as being associated with other masculine words. You know what I mean? Like they come in one group. Um, yeah. W- and they, they, they attribute elements of masculinity to it, the dog. No, 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 no. That bit I disagree with. I don't think they do okay. that. Um, I, I just think... Well, that, that's what these studies suggest. Right. But I think the idea of the association thing for me is the, is the thing that I, I feel intuitively is going on with, with gendered languages. Like mm-hmm. you have a group of objects that are like, say, let's say masculine, but it can be anything. Uh, that there, I, can't, I can't imagine a world in which speakers of such a language wouldn't at least subconsciously group them together and associate associate them not necessarily right. engender them like not necessarily give them genders but just go like oh yeah that's like a dog that's in the same category as a door or a lamp you know like i can't i can't see that there is a, a disconnect between gender and thought like i i i i'm not willing to accept that that there cannot be any links at all you know but mm-hmm. i fully take your point about how like I can easily see how it's um how these studies could be uh not not legit um because there's so much like there's so much like nature versus nurture thing going on there you know uh there's so much about like uh, how you 
grow up, uh, what your social interactions are with people as you grow up to inform how you view the world. Like, it's really hard to, like, pin this stuff down. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's it's a fascinating one. And I think the, the one thing to do here would be to ask people who are listening, who speak uh, gendered languages or languages in down class, and to ask them what they think. Like, that's the clear and obvious thing. Like, a, like an actual case study from people who do this. Uh, because mm-hmm. I'm not a good... I'm not a good example here because I barely speak German. Um, yeah. So if there's any any fluent speakers... I I'm... barely speak Irish. Oh, yeah. Irish is genders, doesn't it? It does. How how many? Two. Two. What's, uh, are they masculine and feminine? Yeah. Oh. So, uh, fear and Chinook and Ban and Chinook. Yeah, masculine and feminine. I don't think it's a neuter gender. So, well, hang on. How does the gender manifest itself in Irish? Um, it, It'll be things like uh how the initial mutations work um like feminine nouns will in mutate a certain way after prepositions and masculine nouns will uh mutate a, a different way after certain prepositions things like that hmm. um and it's relevant to possession as well like um let me think of uh an example here. So the, the the particle or whatever for possession for both genders is a. So say you're saying his mother, it would be a warhir. Mm-hmm. And Mohar is sorry, Mohar is the noun for for mother. So his mother is a warhir, but her mother is a mahir. That's an example. It doesn't mutate after um hmm. her. And then it does the opposite with nouns that begin with vowels so his father is a aher and her father is a haher so one mutates in for consonants and the other mutates for vowels do you know what's mad bill what's that like i took a little bit of french in school and obviously i speak a little bit german and like the amount of time you spend talking about the gender system in these languages is extreme you know, mm-hmm. like every time you encounter a new word, there's always a discussion about gender uh, for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. But it's mad that in Irish class, like and we we both took Irish for like, like what, 12 years more? Of uh, our, about that, yeah. Yeah, of our life. And I don't actually ever remember having a discussion about gender in school in Irish, like never. No. And, yeah, which is, which is mental because if it's a gendered language, you, this, you talk about it like, but... It never happened. It's I don't know. It's very weird. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's the the, the syllabuses are particularly good, to be honest. At the moment, um, the first time I ever really explicitly thought about it was about a year ago when I was doing an evening course. Oh jeez. Yeah. <laughs> there is a damning indictment on the education yeah. system. <laughs> no one ever told me how many cases there were either. I had to ask my teacher on my course last year, who didn't who actually had to think about it because she was a native speaker. And wasn't used to thinking in those kind of grammatical mm. terms. And also, it turns out that it's kind of a hard question to answer for Irish. <laughs> oh, well, I was just about to ask how many cases are there. Um, well, the nominative and the accusative merge. So there's no distinction between them. Like The, the yeah. nouns don't change. So it's like English in that respect. Um, there's the genitive case. Uh which anyone who ever took Irish will know from teachers repeating the word Tishilginadoch without ever actually explaining what that means. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, Edgar. I am. <laughs> um, there's the vocative case. 
We have a vocative case? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so, uh, like, so if you want to call your friend Sean, you'd say, ah, Sean. No, yeah. Yeah, you, you, oh, oh I can never remember whether it's lenition or eclipses. I can only remember the, the, the phrase in Irish. You put a, a shavu after the, 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 on, on, on the first, um, consonant. If it's if if it starts with consonant, yeah, that's mad. <laughs> and then there's a dative case sometimes. There's a dative so case only, sometimes. Only some words still have dative cases, like have the dative case, and it exists in some specific phrases. Hmm. So, for example, Aaron is the dative case of era. Uh, that being Ireland. Uh, yeah, that being the name of Ireland. Yeah. Um, and it, it it comes up for some body parts and things like love and and cuss, which is hand or arm and leg, have dative case inflections, um, and you get it in phrases like oskyun, which means overhead, kyun being the dative of kyun, meaning head. Hmm. But it's you don't use kyun in other situations that would call for the dative case. Okay, it's so only it ha- in that it, phrase, kind it, of, it has a vestigial dative case. Yeah, yeah. It's hmm. it's disappearing, essentially. Okay. That's very apt, along with the entire language. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Irish speakers. Boo. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Boo. For the record, though, I'm not for the disappearing of Irish, like, at all. Just just won't put that on record. I think it's really sad. Um, oh, that's good. And, yeah, I wish, it was, I wish it was taught better in school. I hate to say that because so many people... I, I'm, I'm going to make a call about people here and it might it might offend people, but I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to cut it if it needs to be. I think a lot of people chalk down their lack of academic achievements to poor tutelage when really it can be a case of just laziness. You know, like, oh, like <laughs> I would have done so well had I been taught properly. And it's like, well, maybe you were taught fine, but maybe you just didn't want to put in the time studying and things like that. Um, but I think in Irish, there's a real sense that like the, the way it's taught is just very poor. Like I remember in school, like it's just the, the difference between Irish lessons and German or French lessons were marked in their difference. Like it was, it was chalk and cheese. Like they were not the same, uh, structurally and things like that. And I think that really hurts the Irish language. And it just makes people like me, like in school, I resented the Irish language because there's just, it was this painful painful slog of a 40 minute session every day and I hated it so much where that animosity did not exist for my one year of French and for my entire career in speaking German like it was just like whatever it was it's good it's fine it's just another language um so they need to change that otherwise yeah Irish will will truly die and that's poor Mm -hmm. anyhow tangent alert (laughs) will we do some reddit we'll do some reddit uh, okay, so I have a thing to correct from uh, that has brought up in the Reddit from the last show. Uh, remember, we spoke about the uh, coat of arms, the the rules. I do the heraldic rules. Um, I was paraphrasing uh, the wall of text in it. I mean that in a good way. The good wall of text we got from uh, NGTJA. Was that the name? Yep. Um, and um. Yeah, they were saying that uh, we should mention that these rules are specific to Finnish heraldry and mm-hmm. that Finnish heraldry is often seen as being quite restrictive and things like that. And they left a big post, which I'll probably uh, put in the show notes so people go check out. So, uh, yeah, that is not like the universal 
laws of heraldry. It's it's the laws of Finnish heraldry. I still really like them. I still think that they could be applied really well universally, but just to be 100% clear about that. Mm-hmm. And the next thing, the important thing, the big thing, Bill, I, I mentioned in the in the subreddit that I would really like to see a Artifexian uh, coat of arms. Okay. And I was going to post on uh, r slash heraldry and be like, hey, does anyone want to do this? But then I felt really bad because it's kind of like, hey, does anyone give up their free time and just want to make this stuff for me? Uh, thanks. That sort of thing. So I was kind of like, oh. I don't know if I just go to a whole bunch of strangers and be like, hey, do you want to do this? Um, so I, I want to put on the show, if anyone's interested in heraldry and anyone kind of does heraldry as sort of a hobby, would you be interest in, interested in creating a coat of arms for the show or the Artifexian brand, to use Bill's terms, uh, in, in a broader sense? And if we get a couple of... of um, entries uh, and if we pick one that me and you like i will be willing to pay for this work uh bill and i just off um off recording we talked uh, about the importance of like uh not abusing the the goodwill of people like you know free uh, working for free and things like that and it's important mm-hmm. you know to, to to like put your money where your mouth is and things like that so i am intensely interested in the idea of an artifexian coat of arms so much so that the wallet will be opened if this can be made a reality so uh i need to i want to put it out there like leave us leave me something on the reddit or an email and i'll get in contact to you we'll, we'll sort it out um yeah I really want this to happen. What do you think, Bill? Sorry, I kind of didn't run this by you at all. I'm just really excited about it. So do you want to do No, just, just uh, drop that bombshell on me, why don't you? <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, that that's a cool idea. Um, I don't know how you usually go about commissioning uh, arms from from artists, uh, but I'm sure this, this is a, a legit way to do it. Um, and also, if people are going to be like will people be like doing up something and submitting it to us and and then like if we like it they'll get the money so will people still be you know expending labor yeah we don't have the without recompense yeah we don't have the budget to pay for to pay for drafts mm-hmm. um because what what I was going to ask you off air was like how about we sacrifice uh one month of the patreon um, mm-hmm. to 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 give to the person, which isn't a lot, but it's a hundred percent of the budget allocated for this show, um, <laughs> and that is explicitly what the Patreon is for. Like exactly. we did say that when we set it up, that it would be it would be used to commission art and things like that. And also, I just want to put it out there: there may or may not be the chance of potential artifacts coat of arm t shirts at some stage. <laughs> you never know, like. But yeah, so the, I suppose explicitly, yeah, it would be like we we if it's okay with Bill, and we'll talk about this further off air. Can you uh, put the arms? Can you put arms on t shirts? Man, you can put anything on a t-shirt. You just submit a is PNG. Is it not a bit gauche, though? It's a, a gauche. What's a gauche? Is, is, is it not a bit gauche? What's a gauche? I don't know what like, gauche is. No, gauche is like tacky. Is it not a bit... Well, I don't know. Is or, it... I don't, I don't know. It seems... I don't know. Maybe. Man... Well, I suppose you get, you, get, you get the Hogwarts coat of arms and lots of things, so maybe not. Like, if, if people who are into heraldry go to a heraldry convention and there's merchandise available, like... Surely there would be t-shirts and hoodies and things like that. Like, no one's going to purchase, like, a full-blown medieval shield to, to display their heraldry. Well, it's posters, I suppose. I don't think you can even put those on Redbubble. Red, Redbubble? What's with all the terms I don't understand today, Bill? Redbubble is a, it's a site to sell merchandise on. 
All right. Oh, I didn't know that this site existed. Huh, there you go. Um, anyhow, anyhow. So, sorry, to just outline outline the rules of engagement one more time. Uh, we are willing to give uh, one month of the Patreon to the winner, so to speak. Oh, I hate saying it like that. But, like, the person that we, we think has come up with a really great design. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, one caveat. You need to be over 18. Um like because it's it's a little bit difficult to pay people who are under eighteen. Uh, I have found this out recently. Um, really? Yeah. Well, because uh, as far as uh, what I've come to learn is that under eighteen year olds can't have PayPal's. Oh. And it's difficult to PayPal people money then. And then there's the weird thing about being like, "Can I have your bank details?" Sixteen year old. You know, it's it's it's, it's a very weird dynamic. Yeah. It's, it's just like so. And there's those pesky child labor laws. Very <laughs> child labor laws. <laughs> So, I mean, uh, what's you called? Over 18 would be ideal. Otherwise, we're going to have to come up with some way of of trying yeah. to give you money and not being put in jail for it. Um, you know, uh, so I really hope someone's able to do this because I, ever since I, this popped into my head last month, I swear to God, I've been thinking about this so much. And I've been like, oh, my God, an actual coat of arms. This would be amazing. <laughs> I really hope it happens. Please, internet, make my dreams come true. Um, all right, and, and that is all I have to say about Reddit. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add? Uh, I don't think I've got any Reddit feedback, now. That is an amazingly short follow-up section, and to ensure that it stays short, do you want to move into the writer room? Especially since, like, a good five minutes of it was uh, tangent with Irish grammar. Yes, let's move into the writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> The god Vasa came to the planet thousands of years ago, when the stars were still young. In their mouth, they carried the spark of life. Taking a handful of salt from the Great Bite, and a handful of ice from the World's Dome, they spat out the spark, and around it, they shaped the first humanity. Vasa taught these humans of the world. The god gave their creations the gifts of magic and of masonry, of where to find water in the wastes, what foods to eat and what foods to shun, and of the laws of kinship and warfare to govern the nations. Vasa placed the human tribes in the canyonlands, where the great arms of the Ketien and Orlen meet above the Great Bite. The god then lay down to sleep and gave their name to the planet they had so blessed. The great migrations brought these human nations forth into the world. The people of Beren, and the people of Amger travelled west into Ketien, and here they settled. The people of Hoban, and the people of Saratka, travelled east and north into Orlen, and here they settled. The people of Chamoy stayed settled in the canyonlands. The lesser tribe of the people of Camaras struck far to the east, and settled in the lands around and below the eastern ridge. Here too settled the people of Godin, children of the Hoban. The lesser tribe of the people of Fenakba travelled south to the edges of the Great Bight. As they migrated, the Fasathi waged petty wars and struggled over water and shade, and food ever was scarce. The harpies of Amtlar, horrid creatures in the shape of winged humans, but yet not of Vasa, ranged forth from their mountain fastness to prey on the humans of Fasath. To this day these beasts yet stalk and harry humanity. 
though through this trial and many other, the harsh land and burning sun took its toll on the people of Fasath. The deepest desert oases and the least patches of shaded rock are inhabited by we who overcame this planet. Here these tribes made their homelands, but humanity of all nations may be found in all the lands of Fasath. The nomadic Bini too roam the wastes, traders and wanderers who, alone of all the humanity in Fasath, are not of Vasa and have no homeland here. The last great migration took place twenty generations past, when the people of Duare, children of the Chimoy, set forth from the canyonlands on a religious crusade. They marched the length of Orlen, around the great northern range in the world's dome, in search of a new homeland deep in the planet's unforgiving far quarter. After many generations of prospecting and toil, they founded the garden city of Ilki and dug the great polar canal to feed its many marvellous fields and farms. Nicely done. That was really well read live. Thank you. Ah, I would never be able to do that. It would be verbal diarrhea all over the show. <laughs> I practiced it once or twice last night. Oh, you practiced for the show. Oh, Bill, that means so much. Of course it is. Artifexia will love you even more than they already do. <laughs> ten, ten points to Bill. Um, ten, ten points to House Bill. Ten points to House Bill. Uh, cool. So you did a creation story. Yeah, I did a kind of a creation myth and... Uh, you know, like a, a, an account of the different peoples of Fasath, which is the desert planet that I, I detailed a few episodes ago. I remember this from the Harpies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, why, why do the, the creation, creation myth now? Um, it's been something that, that's been in my mind to do for a while. Um, and it, it helped me, you know, having to sit down and actually do it, it helped me solidify things like the names of people and uh their interactions like i always had it in my mind that the the people who founded ilki were from kind of far away and that they they went there on a kind of a, a religious crusade or something and that it's it's good to have that down on record now uh okay so i have a question about these yep. people uh mm-hmm. it seems like some of the people you mentioned are uh quote of vasa yeah uh, and some of them are not yeah uh, what does this mean? So, the people of Vasa are the tribes created by Vasa, by the god, when the god came to the planet. Mm-hmm. And some of them aren't. Right. <laughs> okay. But that, oh, okay. Are we, oh, wait, hang on. What, what world are we in here? Are we in Yanspar or Hanwavia? Uh, so, th- this is this is Fasath. Which I haven't explicitly said before, but I've given all the hints that this is in the Handwavia setting. Yeah. Oh, okay, this okay. Is, this is the desert planet from the Handwavia setting. So this means that this means Artifexia that we may get answers for Bill today. Oh, what a glorious <laughs> day! <laughs> when, when when you say they're not Avasa, does that mean that they've just bred so much that they are no longer of that lineage, so to speak, or are they like aliens that have come from different planets? Uh, well, the Binni are human. Right, but alien... they are human, but they're not created. They're not humans that were created by Vasa. All right, okay. So you have wait. So you have similar species, but one, but one have been created by a god, and the other ones haven't. Um, bear in mind this is a creation myth, and as such, could be allegorical or metaphorical. Oh, is it a bit racist? 
Is the writer no. a bit right? No, okay. They're not kind of like... No, no. We no, are... th- they're, they're referring to a real thing. No, oh, the, the words are so confusing. A real thing in universe, real thing, or a real thing like in creation? A, a real, a real thing in universe. Like they, they're not just like making this arbitrary distinction that the Bini are not of Vasaf for some kind of bigoted reason. It's, it's referring to there, there is a, a good in universe reason for it. They, they are not of Vasaf. Hmm. Are they of another god? Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Even even when you can talk freely there, about there's something, a, there's an answer. There's an answer to this out there somewhere. There there, there are like a, a significant clue to this is out there and stuff I've I've already talked about on the podcast. On the podcast, yeah. Okay, so hang on. What did we talk about? Hand wave on the podcast. We talked about uh the the last thing we talked about was the like the top down polar map. Uh, yeah, that that's that's facade. Yeah, that's facade. And we talked about like the harpy raids and things like that. Yeah, that, so it wasn't in that episode. What else did we talk about Handwavia? I can only remember lots of Janspar. Well, what what was in Janspar? Uh, what do you mean? Like the Conqueror guy? Um, he was in Janspar. Uh, the Sun Tears were in Janspar. Uh, yeah, which Conqueror guy? What's uh, Amulan? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we had the sort of what I thought was the uh, Native American people. Or were they in Handwavia? They were in Handwavia. They were in Handwavia. Hmm. Okay. What? Is there anything? Hmm. I'm going to have to read your stuff again. All right. All right. We're going to <laughs> we're gonna have to go to Bill's blog. We all have to go to Bill's blog. This is a cunning ploy by Bill to get the viewership numbers up on his uh, blog. Are you running ads on your blog? Yes, I've monetized my yep. Tumblr that I, I post on every three months. Yeah, you see, it's all just a big coy. Bill Bill doesn't really care about this in-universe sort of malarque. Bill just, <laughs> Bill just wants them internet dollars. <laughs> yeah, so so anyway, yeah, the 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 Binni are, they're human as well, but they have a separate origin to okay. the, the other tribes of Fasath. That's actually quite a cool take, uh, given that, like, um, creation myths here are just like, you know we're all just created by the one creator. It's kind of cool that like you have different sentient species who have different, uh, uh, Genesis, Um, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Thank you. Uh, the, the man, there's a lot of names going on. Yes. A lot of names going on. And I think, you know, every so often you hear people who don't, uh, uh, read fantasy literature and they're kind of like, I don't like it because of the amount of names. And I'm always like, that's nonsense. When you stop, it's grand. Uh, but every so often you're reminded of this and I think this is one of these cases this is not a, ba- a bad thing at all I think it's just probably a flaw of uh, the genre in which we uh, we mm-hmm. create in uh, but sometimes yeah, the, the need to name everything uh, can make itself very dense yeah and there's no way around that you, you've alleviated some of that by like having like uh, the Hobin and then their children being the Gobin Godin uh, Godin and it kind of sounds related, so there's less mental yes. burden going on there. So that's 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 not too bad. Um, and by the nature of the kind of document this is, it's you know it's the story of the planet as told by some guy. It's not an actual like it's not an actual story narrative to sit down and read. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, like the, it's, it's like the Bible. It would be in like an it, yeah, it would be like in an oral tradition kind of yeah. thing. Um, so it's it's not like an actual story as such. Bill, did you ever attempt to read the Bible by any chance? Bits of it, yeah. 
I, I so you know I'm like a completionist and I like my completionism. Uh, I yes. was like, I am going to sit down. I'm going to read this thing. I remember. <laughs> oh, were we friends at the time? Oh. Yeah, it was when you were in college. Yeah, I was like, I remember doing a good bit of reading uh, on on the train, uh, commuting to and from college on a weekly basis. Um, and I remember getting to the long, long genealogy lists and just being like this is torturous like and that is no comment on religion or christianity or anything just literally as a piece of prose it was so hard to parse <laughs> and at the same time i was trying to like critically engage with it like i wasn't just reading it emptily emptily it was kind of like okay so this guy he lived for like 900 years and then he had these two and then who are they and where did they go and what did they do and there's just so much stuff going on that it um it's very dense it's very very hard to uh to let it all sink in, which is a shame because I actually really like to say that I've read the entirety of the Bible. Um, that would be a cool thing to be able to say, but it's just really difficult. Um, there's bits of it that I'd like to read properly, like the the, the judges and the kings and stuff. They they just sound kind of badass. Uh, what's what's in Judges and Kings? Is Judges and Kings New Testament or Old Testament? Old Testament. Judges and Kings is all like a, the the wars of the the Israelites and the kings and the stuff that they got up to. Judges were like military leaders. Oh. And like the the Battle of Jericho and stuff was was in Judges, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fun. Um not not the long genealogies. <laughs> they're, they're not fun. Um but anyway, sorry, we don't want to make this the religious episode. Um the uh, I've I've one final question. Mm -hmm. uh, about your piece of prose uh, I want clarification over the great migrations so yeah. so Vasa this god comes uh, mm -hmm. creates humanity goes to sleep uh, and uh, humanity just does its own sort of jazz and then and then you say the great mi migrations brought these human nations forth into the world um, but didn't the god bring the human nations forth into the world like what's what's going on there so yeah, it's it, I don't mean brought them forth as in created them. I mean brought them forth as in they traveled into the wider world. Oh okay. Oh, so the yeah. great migrations were literally just literally just migrations. Like they were created yeah. and then they all just spread and did their own thing. Yeah. So so the, the yeah. homeland is like the people were created. Actually, did, did, did I say that explicitly? Maybe that kind of got lost in everything. No. That yeah, they 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 were created in the Canyonlands. Yeah. Is is kind of the the traditional homeland of of humanity on Fasath. Um and then the great migrations is when the the nations w went out into the world and traveled around the place and f found their own individual homelands. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Sorry, I was just I, I I could probably change the grammar of that a little, but yeah, that's a fair point. Cool, cool. Uh now so do you have anything else to add? Anything that I haven't picked apart that you think is uh, is uh, pertinent? Um no, I don't think so. Uh, again, I've only really addressed the northern part of Fasath in this. Um, and I have, like, I acknowledged in, in the last thing that there are people in the south of Fasath. Uh, sorry, in the south of Fasath. Um, which I should probably incorporate into this creation with somehow because the two hemispheres are aware of each other. Um, but I'm not sure exactly how to do that in, in this context. And I haven't worked out all the details of the, the southern part yet either. Um, but I do know that the people of the south are not of Vasa. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Okay. 
Hmm. Well, does that mean that the, uh, what are they really called? The Bonin? The Bini. The Bini. Uh, are they Southerners? Uh, no. They're not. Okay, they're okay. Not, so, they're not from the south of, of Fasath. Okay, so those of Fasath, all in the south are not of Fasath. Mm-hmm. But not everyone who is not of Fasath is in the south, if you yeah. get what I mean. Yeah, okay, right. Okay, yeah. fine. Cool. Okay, cool. We got that. Um, what else? Yeah, uh, and as I say here, the uh, the these homelands that I've listed aren't uh, absolute, so it's not like all of the Chimoy will be in the Canyonlands, or you'll only find the people of Baren in the the Western Canyon. It's just that's kind of their homelands, but you know, the history has been long enough that you will find communities of any of the people all over the Northern Hemisphere. A good world builder deals in uh, a little bit of vagueness. Uh... Yeah. And absolutes, only Sith uh, deal in absolutes. <laughs> uh, so I, I commend your decision there, Bill. <laughs> um, and I didn't, I didn't note this, I couldn't work this in, but around the world's dome in the northern part is actually mostly people of Amgar. Okay. That's not relevant to anything, but that's just a, a fact that I wanted to, to put in there as well. Again, as arbiter of the canon, right? Like, you, but you're effectively, you are like the radio version of George Lucas, right? Who just puts stuff out there. And then people will run with it eventually. In many, many, many thousands of years, Bill, when both you and I are no longer of this world, right? Someone will pick up... When we will have ascended to a higher plane of existence, you mean? Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, Someone will find the relics of this recording and will piece together all your stories thinking that it is uh, a, what you call, an account of what Earth was like back in the day. So... (laughs) So you need to just drop everything you need to drop to give future uh, future nerds fodder to, to to go with, you know? Wait, there used to be extra planets? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Like, <laughs> what's called creation stories are usually a little bit crazy. So, I mean, you know. Um, but yeah, on some of the creation stories, um, do you have a... Do, okay, two questions. Do you know much about creation myths from around the world? And if so, do you have a favorite one or one that kind of resonates with you? Um, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, hmm. I, none that I could really talk about. I'm I'm familiar with a fair few in passing from like having read them in books years ago and having read about them in general, say on Wikipedia and stuff. But nothing that I would say I was really familiar with, like really conversant with enough to to speak about. There, there is one. Okay, now I am going to tread on some pretty sensitive topics here, so just we all need to bear this in mind uh, and pull me up here, Bill, if you need to. Uh, but I was watching Crash Course uh, Mythology, mm-hmm. and they did an episode, or at least some of the episode was dedicated to Native American uh, creation myths. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, so I don't know if this is, I don't know who this creation myth is attributed to. I can't remember. Um, but one group of people have this really nice myth uh, that gives agency to nature. And I want to be careful here because I think very often people, when they talk about Native Americans, they always be all like, you know, oh, they're all in tune with nature. They're all peaceful and things like that and kind of paint them as this over, yeah. overly simplistic Pocahontas style. We love the trees sort of people when they're just as complex as everyone else. Um, I watched Pocahontas for the first time a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, the gra- the the CG is really good. Uh, I don't remember there being. It was the storm scene at the start CGI. <laughs> no, that was meant to be a joke about the the Cameron's Pocahontas, as in CG, and you know. Oh, as as in Avatar. As in Avatar, because it's just okay. Pocahontas. Um, okay, cool. 
the uh, well, we'll get back to Paul Connors in a second, but yeah, okay. So, the uh, so I don't want to paint uh, Native Americans as being just you know nature loving and nothing else, uh, because yeah. like I'm, I imagine that's not true, but um, given that they had a much healthier relationship to the land that than Europeans had. Uh, mm. it didn't shock me that their creation myths would involve a lot more nature. And this particular one, I can't remember the details, but I remember I still have this image of like uh, animals were like real characters in it. And they were the ones that like kind of drove the plot of this creation myth. And they had like personalities. And it was like really, it was really like a real good feel good sort of thing, as opposed to sort of the more Western things where it's a lot of kind of doom and gloom. Um, this one was, I don't know, it just, it, it seemed to come from a different literary tradition and mm-hmm. it was, it was really, really interesting and a really brilliant story as well. Like I found myself really engaged. So I will, I'll put the links in the show notes to that episode of, of Crash Course and you go check it out. Uh, cool. in general, the, the mythology section on Crash Course is very, very good uh, and makes for really good world building fodder. So that could be in links as well. Great. Um, but yeah, uh, so, but yeah, Pocahontas. What do you think of Pocahontas? Um, it was all right, yeah. Uh, see, I, I haven't seen a lot of the Disney films. Like, I didn't see a lot of them as a kid, for whatever reason. Um, so I've, I've watched a good few recently. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume that Pocahontas is probably quite racist, uh, just because it's uh, an animated movie. And I think Disney probably doesn't have a great track record of faithfully presenting other cultures. Um, no. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was it was a pretty a pretty entertaining story. Um, John is an absolute. Uh, well, I can't really say any of these words in the podcast. He's an awful. <laughs> he's a horrible character. He's a really horrible character. Um, and he kind of gets just sort of just sort of gets redeemed, I guess. Um, I like the villain. The villain is very entertaining, and he has a really good song about uh, mining and and blowing stuff up for gold and things. It's it's yeah, I think that's my favorite song. Not <laughs> man, those those early Disney videos uh, films, they they can be difficult to watch from a modern perspective sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know my favorite example of kind of just real like uh, not great gender politics in, in Disney films, and I appreciate it's of a different time. So you know. It was a different standard back then, but in Beauty and the Beast, when Garçon, uh like exposes the virtues of being all manly and yeah. how how oh, it's just it's just yeah. it's just so it's it's so incredibly on the nose. Like it's just like it's not even there's no attempt made to like shy away from this message. It's just very much like I man, you woman, we mate now, and it's like oh, I I love Garçon's song, you know. Um... The one where he's in the pub. Yeah, but that is that is one of my favorite songs of all time. It's, it's such a good song. It's so and it's so over the top as well. Like it's so yeah. massively, massively yeah. over the top. It's amazing. I actually quite like Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the animated film. Yeah, yeah, no, I do as well. It's just there's bits you have to wade through where you're kind of like, oh, it's not 2018. I have to remember this. Um, <laughs> but yeah. and there's a bit with really bad CGI in it. The bit where where Bell and the Beast dance in the ballroom, they're hand drawn, and the yeah. ballroom is CGI'd, and it's horrible clash. It's awful. It's like a really really stark clash, uh, and I know like they have to do that kind of thing to get through the sort of the awkward teenage years of computer graphics. Yeah. Um, 
you know, they had to make those those experiments to to get better. But it's it has dated really badly. <laughs> yeah, really, really badly. Um, the I like the uh, the live action version as well. But I've heard that's great. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's great. That was quite good. And if I remember correctly, I think they made uh, they made the Garçon song in the pub funnier, which is oh wow, which which is great. There's there's a okay. I, I this does this count as spoilers? I, does it does it deviate from the from the animated film? Uh, well, the song, the lyric for the song deviates from the animated film, which I'm about no, to tell you. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure you can share a lyric from the song. Okay. Uh, the bit that, like, cracked me up completely, uh, was, uh, you know way it's always no one X like our song? Yeah. Uh, and the line was, no one writes these endless refrains like our song? And I was just like, yes! <laughs> yes! Who can make up these endless refrains like our song? It was the funniest thing ever. So good, so good. Um, anyhow, anyhow, this is this is not the the Disney podcast. Um, so uh, yeah, do you have anything else to share, or shall we crack on to uh, my video stuff? Uh, no, I think I think that's that's everything. Um, sorry, I was clicking there because I thought I was I was clipping again. Um, I think I think that's everything. That's what I've uh, written for this week. A little bit more lore, or this month, a little bit more lore for Fasath and confirmation that uh, Fasath is part of the Henwavia setting. Yes, um, along with uh, Nlamo and the the original episode I did where I I detailed the different planets and that. Um, Bill, yeah. Bill, yes? Bill, can I yeah. set you a challenge? It just popped into my head. Do you remember? You can try. I, I will try. Well, I'm gonna put it out there. You, you you can choose to accept it if you want. Um, mm. Do you remember we talked last time about the unreliable document? Yes. And how certain things could be uh, redacted because of like damage or aging and things like that. Mm-hmm. That got me thinking about like uh, the how many words one can spend in order to still create uh, some sort of feeling about the world in which you're trying to convey. Um, like, as in, you write a big piece of prose, but 90% of it gets burnt in a fire. Uh, could that still be valuable? Uh, and yeah. then, I, then I thought of, do you know there's a subreddit called, uh, I think it's Nano Stories? Um, I think that's what it's called. And the subreddit specializes in writing uh, stories in as few words as possible. So I think right. it's something like 50 uh, or 20 or 50, something like, in that order of magnitude right. anyways. Flash fiction. Fla- was that what it's called? Flash fiction. I've heard that term used as well, yeah. So I was wondering, could you, do you think you could be able to create a document from your world that has undergone significant, like, degradation with with the ages, such that it is only, uh, like, 50 words long, but still Mm -hmm. packs a punch and we learn about uh, Hanwavia or Janspar? That's interesting. I might try that. I would be very, very intrigued. Yeah. That would be a really cool thing to do because, like, I'm a minimalist. I love minimalism. And the idea of writing as little as possible with the best effect is very appealing to me as opposed to, like, here is a two-page tome, as we've noted before. Um, you know, <laughs> that, would be, that would be really cool. If, you, if, you, if, if, that, if that's something you want to pursue, that would be awesome. I, I look forward to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have a think about that. It reminds me of um, stuff that I've, I've come across before. Uh, I think it was in 
it was on a website that was like loads of writing tips and writing exercises and it was mostly inspired by William Burroughs I think and one of the things that that he used to do was he would he would write a section of prose and then he would cut it up and rearrange it Hmm. Uh, to to get new structures and to get new turns of phrase and kind of in in his mind he was he was kind of un, uh, exposing underlying possibilities in the text. Hmm. Um, now it has to be borne in mind that he was uh, eccentric in the extreme. <laughs> um, to to be diplomatic about it, uh, uh, but th- th- this was this was part of of his technique. And if you read, for example, Naked Lunch, you can see that that you have these recurring phrases or these these recurring bits of phrases that that reappear in different combinations hmm. which is which is quite interesting like uh there's something about someone's face smashing like a rotten cantaloupe um or someone uh, someone wearing a gabardine overcoat and then that like that gabardine overcoat like reappears or it's like gabardine overcoat like a rotten cantaloupe um and there's things like that hmm. Uh, so actually that's not all that similar, but you know, the idea of like messing with the document itself. Um, and another one of the things I thought this was really interesting was to try and make, make a piece of fiction or like a, 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 a compelling piece of writing by creating sort of paratextual documents, like just create, uh, an index to a book. And what story can you tell with that? How much can you convey just through the table of contents? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That man is eccentric. Jesus. I don't know if that was necessarily one of his, but oh, it, was okay. certainly, it was certainly on a website that was inspired by his ideas. Okay. If you heard, if you heard a load of kind of like soft clapping sounds there, I was trying to catch a fly. I think I did actually catch it. Oh, you went full Obama on it. Well done. Uh, well, it was it was less it was less chill than him. It was more of a snatch, but I got it, which is the important thing. <laughs> it's hard to be as chill as Obama, you know. Um, but what's called that's really interesting. That's like uh, the the idea of taking prose, cutting it up, and rearranging it. Like mm-hmm. that reminds me of using like combinatorics in musical composition. You know, you like you'd have these cells of pitches, and you'd like rearrange and like you know take a block yeah. here and put it there. That's a really interesting way of doing it. Like, but. Uh, it strikes me as just being inherently broken because at least in music, you know, sound waves are the combining thread. But if you're going to tear apart grammar and rearrange it, like, I don't see how that would work. But it's kind of interesting that somebody, somebody would apply combinatorics mm. to literature. Like, that's a real fascinating idea. Well, you know, you, you still have editors and, and, you know, you still have an editorial process of yourself that you can choose a combination that is particularly evocative yeah. or is particularly interesting. That's fair. Um... But the, the more direct analog of the, the cut-up technique for music is to do it with, like, the physical medium, as in tape, um, in a music concrete kind of way. Oh, yeah. And this was explicitly, I was actually reading about this yesterday, this was explicitly a thing that the Beatles did for parts of Sgt. Pepper. Um, Pro- it's think, probably Sgt. Pepper, to be fair. Uh, for the benefit of Mr. Kite has a bit that's, like, all these marches kind of brass marches cut up and, and reassembled. Um, so you get the sensation of it, but without like a kind of a musical context. And then I think for a Day in the Life, there's a bit that has a cut up technique in it as well. Hmm. Yeah. Man, this is this is a conversation that only two people who study the liberal arts can have. 
<laughs> combinatorics, the connection between combinatorics in literature and musical composition. Like that, that right there is a really dry academic essay waiting to happen. Um, that doesn't sound dry. That sounds class. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, uh, what's it called? Academic essays can be both class and dry at the same time. Fair enough. Uh, the, the two are not mutually exclusive. Um, anyhow, shall we crack on? Let's let's crack on into your stuff. All right. So, uh, as always, uh, my world building came in the form of video making. Um, and slightly new plan, just to pull back the curtain here a little bit. Uh, we don't know how this is going to play out yet, myself and Bill. But, but I would like to do a podcast after every video um, release. Uh, because I always like have a whole bunch of things I want to talk about based on what uh, Artifexia has said about the video. And I'm always like, ah, oh, damn, we should be recording now and we should get that on tape. And, you know, people can listen to it and learn from it. Um, so I'm kind of trying to move in that direction. And we just need to see whether or not it works with Bill's schedule uh, and things like that. But um, just a heads up of what's going on. Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, I released a video yesterday night uh, called Fantasy Maps and plate tectonics. Uh, and uh, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk about. Cool. Um, number one, oh, oh, TLDR for the video. It's, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. I create a, uh, a map uh, using plate tectonics uh, and trying to show people what plate, plate tectonics are, what sort of features one can expect and how to create land masses around it. Uh, I gotta say, this video has been an ex- astounding success. Uh, like, not view-wise, because my view count is still relatively low, given that I shot myself in the foot by taking a year off. Um, but in terms of comments, like there usually there's always a handful of comments being like, you got this wrong, uh, this isn't exactly correct. Hardly any of that this time. Like, I think there was one, maybe. Everyone else kind of like, yes, oh my god! So it's really nice. It's really good. Um, cool. Anyhow, so uh, one of the patrons uh, on the uh, YouTube channel's uh, YouTube channel YouTube channel's Patreon uh, asked about plate sizes, right? Like, how big or small could plates get on a planet? Now, Mm -hmm. I have no answer for this, and I haven't been able to find an answer, but uh, the captain is currently uh, studying geology. I talked to her a little bit. Now, she would be a pains to stress that she's not a geologist yet, uh, so her word is definitely not law. But both of us kind of, after mulling it over, kind of came to the conclusion that plates can be as big or as small as as whatever you want. We we couldn't come across, we couldn't think of anything that would limit uh, the size of it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you ta- imagine you take an eggshell and you smash it, like, it, it could smash in, you know, if it was lucky, it could smash into two, uh, like, very even big plates, or it could fracture into, like, like, hundreds of smaller ones. I don't think there's any law guiding it. Um... So I suppose just to bring that up, and also if someone wants to correct me on that, I would, uh, I'd like to know about. Um, but it makes intuitive sense, yeah? Uh, I'm trying to take this to a sort of an extreme and imagine that you have, like, something the size of, say, the Pacific Plate. And, uh, you know, so, okay, say you have an area the size of the Pacific Plate on Earth mm-hmm. that is a bunch of smaller plates. Could the rest of the planet be one plate? I mean, maybe not, but that's mm. not really that's not really a question of size. That's a question of like orientation. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a question. No, because you could or- you could orient that in any way. 
No, no, but what I mean is if you had, imagine you had like the specific plate and that's been fractured into many small ones. Right. And then encasing that is one singular plate. Uh, yeah. My gut is telling me that just like my intuitive feeling of stresses would mean that that singular plate that's kind of encasing the smaller plates would somehow crack down the middle. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. So right. so there is there is a, a, a size relative to the planet problem. Yeah, fair fair enough, fair enough. Uh but that but that but then if we take it to a much bigger planet, you can get a much bigger plate. So I don't think there's any Oh, well, oh of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't think there's any law that says that a plate must be can only ever be x size. Um I yeah, but th- there's probably some like proportion to the the you know actual planet that it's on that it becomes implausible at. Perhaps I I can I can't imagine there would be much literature written about this because I mean real scientists probably don't care about that. Um, given that they'd be much more interested in studying the tectonics we see as opposed to like yeah. hypothetical tectonics. Um, but like functionally though, I suppose uh, sort of the the deal clencher on this is that. I think it doesn't really matter. I think the question is an interesting one, but it has no real significance to the world building process because if you do go down the plate route with your maps, uh, if you split it up like Earth, like seven to eight major plates and such, they'll kind of naturally fall into what would be considered sort of a a decent size. Do you know what I mean? Say like that if, again? if you're going to go extreme and try and split your planet into two plates, then we, we bump into the idea of maybe these plates are too big perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you do an Earth thing and say, all right, my planet has like seven plates like Earth, you're naturally going to have so many plates such that the sizes won't be a problem. Do you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting question, but functionally, I think uh, it, it, it doesn't affect the mapping process. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up was uh, I had an idea, Bill. I've had another one of Edgar's crazy ideas. Oh, goody. Oh, goody. I think people who write fantasy novels, I think they need to pay more attention to their map projections. Because I, I don't know if this is a thing that people really care about. Um, but like the more I look into map projections, the more I think about them, the more I realize that the projection itself could help tell people something about a world. Because every projection is used for a different thing. You know, like some projection will be really good for, uh, like, say, aerial navigation because they'll show, like, uh, they will show, the like, great arcs uh, as straight lines. So, like, the path an airplane will take on, mm-hmm. say, Mercator is going to be bent-looking. Uh, but on, I think they're called azimuthal projections, they're going to be straight lines and, you know, people who fly planes will use those sort of projections, that sort of jazz. Like... That can tell about a world. Like if you're running an aviation setting, uh, put in an azimuthal projection of your world. Uh, if you're running like a seafaring thing, put in a projection that uh, people who uh, sail the seas would actually use. Yeah, um, like Mercator. Yeah, oh, is, is, Mer- is Mercator the one uh, that is used uh, for seas? He- headings are straight lines on, okay. on Mercator. So, like, I think, yeah, going northeast will be a straight line on, on Mercator. Okay, cool. Um, so, I think, th- and I don't think this is a thing that is actually done in fantasy literature. I think people just draw maps on a blank piece of paper and... Uh, yeah, put, put I mean, I, th- I think that's that's one useful kind of ad- addition to telling a story. But, you know, if, if we're thinking of typical medieval fantasy when they didn't have very good maps... 
then it makes sense to not really think that much about the about the projection. And man, that is that was going to be my second point. I was okay. going to, I, was, <laughs> I was going to be like, uh, only do this if if your tech level is high enough. But then I still think my point still holds because if you look at say uh, like uh, Game of Thrones, for example. Like, mm-hmm. that map is not of medieval tech level. Like, if you compare it to the sort of maps that were created in medieval times, uh, it looks like Google Earth in comparison. Uh, so I still think people are kind of like, I need to draw a pretty looking map. And I think a lot of focus on in fantasy cartography is on making a thing look pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to A, making it be an artifact of the world and B, making it be a tool of the world. Like, as in, like, people would actually use this tool. Um, and I just think that's something people need to think about as opposed to kind of like, how do I make the prettiest looking map? Yeah. And, and you, you're a good case in point for this because remember you did your uh, way back, you did the the soldier sketched a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I think using your words, it's not the prettiest map because it's, it's done by someone on horseback, I, uh, I seem to remember. Um, so it's not going to be, it's not going to have like, various yeah. photoshop filters on it because you know that's not a thing and the, I think, the expedition's actual cartographer died yeah 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 i love that man why why does your map not look good the expedition's actual cartographer died yeah he did <laughs> imagine just like an out of context statement on like like or slash imaginary maps man your map looks weak yeah but the expedition's actual cartographer died what do you expect? <laughs> Brian did his best. Come on. Oh, it's so good. Uh, but yeah, I think I just yeah, I think people need to think more about it. And I'm I'm really the more I think about it, the more I'm rallying against pretty cartography. Um it has its place. I totally get it. And I think uh all the tutorials you see on YouTube of people making really beautiful looking maps, they they totally do have their place. But I, I still think like story needs to drive the overall arc of the thing mm-hmm. um, is is my idea and the final point uh that was brought up in the comments below the video which i think is pertinent for all of our artifacts to hear is the concept of old mountains um i didn't really touch on this explicitly in the video i implicitly talked about it in showing my map but um i, I talked about how uh at convergent plate boundaries uh mountains are created and right. w- when these plates become no longer convergent, like reverse direction, which blew my mind, can actually happen. Uh, plates can just like turn around, or I think rather rotate and go back the other way. Um, if they cease to be convergent, these mountains will erode with time uh, and become low-lying mountains, like the Appalachians. Uh, the Appalachians, I believe, once formed, were like as big as the Himalayas, but like obviously no new mountains are being created so they just they rolled away um but they're right in the middle of a plate aren't they because they're in the middle of the american plate which goes from the west coast to the center of the atlantic well they're not in the middle they're they're on the east side yeah so you've got across america and then you've got a big chunk of the atlantic right right but like at one time uh america was bashing up into africa right Right, so like when they were bashing up against Africa, the, the place where the Appalachians are would have been uh, near or on the boundary 
of the converted. Okay, and on, on uh, everything that's under the the Atlantic now is material that has been created since then by the divergence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, Africa and America colliding uh, would have driven them up, and then they rolled it away. So I think just for a little bit of extra added realism uh, for your cartography, it's worth thinking about once you've laid out your landmasses. Going okay, so these are like splitting apart. Uh, were they at one stage in contact? If so, mountains would have formed, uh, but they would have eroded away. So maybe make low-lying mountains at those points. And I kind of, if you look at the map in the video, links in the uh, in the show notes, you kind of see that like surrounding the divergent edges are slightly, it's, it's slightly more elevated to kind of hint at that. Um, lots of people talk mm-hmm. about the need to simulate many billions of years of plate tectonics in their cartography. I, I think that's enough. You know, lay out your continents, figure out where your mountain ranges are going to be relative, based on your plates, and then just go, where might they have came from? Put some old mountains there. I don't think you need to go back and figure out exactly mm-hmm. where everything was and all the places where old mountains would exist over time and things like that. Uh, but I, So I think that's an important thing to note. Just a little extra thing takes no time to do but adds a little bit of more, more geological history to your map. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. Uh, that's, and that is all the points I have on uh, fantasy cartography. I, I have a question about the video. Oh, yes, yes, sorry, go for it. So, you, you have all the different types of boundaries. You've got the convergent boundaries, mm-hmm. and the divergent boundaries, mm-hmm. and the transform boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's oceanic-oceanic transform boundaries, and there's continental-continental transform boundaries. Yeah. Now, you explain why there's no such thing as an oceanic-continental divergence boundary, but why is there no such thing as an oceanic-continental transform boundary okay so i didn't explain this in the video because i couldn't find a good reason why not uh okay. it it may be and, and uh, any geologists out there please please contact me because i do actually want to know uh it may be a case that we don't observe them on earth but they may well exist uh intuitively i kind of think that if you have like a oceanic continental transform boundary I would imagine, given the densities of the plates, that even though they are grinding up against one another, the denser one will still want to subduct and functionally form kind of like a weak convergent boundary. Do you know what I mean? Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, I But that is complete speculation on my part. I have no clue, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find anything uh, to back that up. Um, and bec- and again, because uh, real scientists are not world builders, they're not interested in this hypothetical thing. They're they're interested in explaining what we see on Earth, and uh, we don't we don't see these in any meaningful way. Um, so does that answer the question somewhat? Uh, I think it does. My other question is: mm-hmm. Are like continental and oceanic plates actually taxonomically different plates, or is it just? I mean, like for example, the 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 East African Rift Valley, yes, like that that plate on the eastern half of it, I can't remember what it's called, um, is largely under the Indian Ocean. So, is it just a plate that has a bit that's oceanic and a bit that's continental? Like, is it just plates can have have different thicknesses at various points rather than being fundamentally different things? Uh, okay, yeah. So the stuff. Okay, so uh, I suppose to clarify, uh, no plate is going to be entirely continental and entirely oceanic. Um, right. That's a problem that cartographers, fantasy cartographers have. Uh, you highlight the East African Rift Valley, and that's a good point. Like it is predominantly 
oceanic, but you have that sliver that's continental. So there can be a mixture. Yeah. Um, they're like like they are taxonomically different in the sense that like the continental part of a plate uh, will be made up of fundamentally different rock. Like it's made out okay. of like it's made out of granites uh, and things like that. I mentioned a video that this felsic. Uh, and that is a name for a family of rock, granite being the most common. And they are, uh, like, by definition, less dense. Um, and then the oceanic plates are uh, more dense, uh, and they're made of, like, uh, they're mafic compositions. I think it's basalt I said in the video. So that you will get, like, they're fundamentally different, uh, di- comprised of different things. Okay. Yeah, so again, I, my knowledge on this is like literally 100% of my knowledge is what's contained in that video. And outside of that, I'm I'm not a geologist and I don't really understand mm-hmm. it very well. Um, but yeah, so does that, do you have any other questions? No, I think that answers it all. Cool. Um, right, That's so that was my world building and that was your world building. Uh, shall, we, shall we crack into the green room? Those were our world buildings. Yes, let's go to the green room. How are you for time? You said you need to be done by 12. Uh, I don't today, uh, as it turns out. Okay. I'm not doing... I, I'm not going to work, so... Oh, cool. I'm, okay. not, I'm, not, I'm not going to my first job. Okay, so we are... We're, I'm not going to hold you up much longer, but it's good to know we got a bit of time. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, important uh, piece of green room business, uh, Bill, we need to attend to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the artifacts of census that I forgot from the last episode, and I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I, I'm going to bring it Very up here. Good. The results are in. Uh, we got in the order of about 130 uh, replies to the form. 130? Yeah, which isn't bad. It's not bad. Not bad. That's quite good. Uh, I messed up severely, though, in setting up the form. Mm-hmm. Because what I should have done is I should have just copy and pasted a list of all the countries in the world and put it into the form. Instead, I was just kind of like, what country do you come from? And Oh my God, have I learned that people are very specific about the type of countries they come from. Uh, we had many, many variations on Scotland, Wales, England, United Kingdom, uh, and I had to just lump them all together. I'm really sorry, Scottish and Welsh people, because oh. I know, I know, but the map, it'll be in the show notes, the map that the Google Sheets provides does not treat Wales and Scotland as separate entities. I know it's flawed. I'm sorry. But I wanted to show the data on a map. So, uh, and I'm then not there, happy about that. You what? I'm not happy about that. I think you need to write a strongly worded uh, letter of complaint to Google. Uh, I mean, you could have used a different map. Uh, the, well, the, the, like, it's a graph function on the sheets. Uh, so oh, the, you're using some kind of preset thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Where it just takes the data and color codes. Uh, it makes a heat map basically on the world, but it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't distinguish Wales and Scotland. I'm with you, man. They're separate countries, like clearly. Does um, it recognize Kosovo? Does it? Re- we, well, we didn't get any from Kosovo, so uh, I, I, I'm going to lean really close to my computer screen here. <laughs> Enhance. <laughs> Enhance, like like CSI. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Or like the old uh, Blade Runner computer game, for anyone who can remember that. I don't think it does have Kosovo. Do you know what I find is often... Oh, no, it does. It does, I think. Yeah, it does. Do you know what's what's often a uh, sticking point in, uh, like... um, We're about to get political here, people. I'm sorry. Uh, In Quizzes of the World, um, 
there's various different like quizzes of the world. Like they show you a map, you input all the countries, try and answer in 15 minutes, that sort of jazz. Uh, but depend- yeah. depending on the website, they pick different countries. And there's a bit of a sticking point always as to whether or not Palestine is considered a country. Um, mm-hmm. that, that has led to many a furious argument uh, in comments below these quizzes <laughs> being like, this is not on and that sort of jazz. It's, it's a difficult thing when it comes to people's patriotism and things like that. Um, but in any case, uh, oh yeah, and then as well, we had a lot of people, we had so many variations on the United States of America. We had like people writing the United States of America, the U.S., the the United the the states uh, USA we had people write Merca uh, there was someone who wrote something or other that when I downloaded it into uh, my Word document uh, it scrambled and became a whole load of nonsense letters but I but but retained the word Merca so they got counted uh, it was Brilliant. it was it was very <laughs> very funny and then we had one person from Sweden who wrote three variations of the word Sweden, which I believe is uh, the English version, the Swedish version, and then something else. And I don't know, but they got... Well, there's, cal- there's a number of... There's, uh, I was reading about this the other day. There's like six recognized minority languages in Sweden. Right, so there's a couple of them. So it was very fun to go through this. I'm glad it was only in quotes 130, because if it had been a lot more, I'd been like, oh God, I might need to retake the census. But anyhow, we got to we got to a result, and unsurprisingly, it was dominated by the US. Again, links in the show notes to the, to the charts. Um, but a few surprising things. New Zealand, right? New Zealanders have put in a good show. New Zealanders are like top six. They're the sixth, sixth place. And, well, you not know, bad. per head of capita, that's not bad at all. Because, like, there aren't as many people mm-hmm. in New Zealand as, you know, the United Kingdom and things like that. But yet they're really high up on the chart. I thought it was really good. Um, the so people in China, uh, which is class, uh, and also Nigeria, Malaysia and Israel kind of surprised me a little bit. Uh, mainly because I just, I usually think that, you know, who, who outside of the States and Ireland listens to this podcast. But apparently people do. Um and we have representation on every continent in the world, barring Antarctica. Um, oh, very nice. But that was, so that was kind of cool. I had a lot of fun. Uruguay? Uh, Sweet. We got some Uruguay action going on there, which is really good. Nigeria yeah. really surprises me. Like, uh, I would have, you know, the South Africa, I would have been like, okay, I can see that. But I, Nigeria, that's very interesting. Um, How come? I don't know, just because... I don't know, it's not usually a, uh, a country that pops up in the metrics an awful lot on YouTube. Um, oh, fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Do you know what the weirdest one ever was? I remember getting uh, views from North Korea <laughs> on my channel. Now, I don't know how this works. I don't know if it's a glitch. The only thing I th- can think of is that somehow some VPN found a way to bounce its signal off something North Korea related. I don't know. But like... I I severely doubt that there are actual North Koreans watching my videos, uh, but it was fun to see North Korea light up a little bit on the little uh, the YouTube map. It's like, hey, that's really interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, so go to the show notes and check out the uh, the artifacts map and the results of the artifacts census. Thank you to everyone who who uh, who signed up and left their countries. It was really fun. It was really fun doing that, and no shock. Uh, United States on top, then United Kingdom, then Canada. There are your top three. Ireland didn't even didn't even make the top five. Only three listeners in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Germany, New Zealand, and Sweden uh, betted out. 
um, mm. which is which is shocking bad. Testament again to the fact that you do not make uh, stuff on the internet for your immediate surroundings. And given that everyone in Ireland knows everyone else, they're effectively all just family members and you don't make stuff for your family members. It's for the wider world. Um, so, so yeah, that was pretty cool. So again, go check out the show notes um, and have a look. Have a look at where all you people live. <laughs> um, so that, that's 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 all I have for the green room. Have you got anything that's been going on in your life? Uh, have I got anything that's been going on in my life? Um, How, I went well, to Amsterdam. Well, hang on, well, before Amsterdam, did you survive the uh, snow apocalypse? I survived both of them. The the main one and the smaller one this weekend. The beast from the east and the beast from the east too. For for the listeners, uh, we had a lot of snow here. Um, like objectively a lot like I was talking to Zidnaf and I told him about the amount of snow that had fallen he was like yeah that's enough to actually cause problems where we are as well it's not just you know a country that doesn't expect snow gets a little bit of snow doesn't he live in Colorado what doesn't he live in Colorado yeah but the Colorado's elevation is really high yeah so I, I would have thought they would be very used to snow right right but like so from a person who is very used to snow you know, saying that you had a couple of feet of the stuff uh, would still not cause alarm on their part, but kind of like, yes, that is an inconvenience. Do you know what I mean? As opposed mm. to like normal Irish way of dealing with snow where you get a slight dusting of it and then the country grinds to a halt and everyone else laughs mm. at it because you're kind of like, that's not snow. What are you talking about? Uh, Zidnaf was like, no, that is that's that is a solid amount of snow. Congratulations. Um, See, I, I don't have a TV or anything and I don't listen to the radio or anything. So I didn't really heed the warning because i was just seeing people worry about it on social media and that so i was like oh, okay there's going to be snow whatever and i expected it to be the usual light dusting and then i was stuck in my flat for four days <laughs> <laughs> i mean i was i was able to like to leave to go to town like to go into town because i live in a town um but there was nowhere to go there was nothing to do <laughs> yeah there was uh there was no food in little near us our supermarket um mm-hmm. all fresh all fresh food had been hoarded um, the captain went for a shop and sent me a picture of the, the veg aisle and I think it had something like one lowly cauliflower head sitting in the entire fr- uh, veg aisle all the bread had been <laughs> sold out it was just it was actually a little bit crazy like it was mental uh, I, I luckily I had enough food in and I I, I did a, I did a little bit of shopping the day before the Tuesday which was the day like the night that it hit was Tuesday night Um. But I, I decided, well, if it's going to be, like, snowed in for a few days, then it would be foolish to start eating the food now. So this is a perfect excuse to get a pizza. So, <laughs> so I got a pizza. <laughs> nice. And, and I, I had made, I had made like, a couple of stir fries and stuff that I had lying in the fridge anyway. So I, I got through it okay. The, um, the, there's four takeaway shops around the corner from me, and they had the ingenious idea of staying open um, throughout the snowpocalypse. Uh, because mm-hmm. they all live just above above the takeaway, so there's no commuting. Ah, yes. then, then it's fine, yeah. Yeah, and then they must have made an absolute killing from people who are just kind of like, I have no food, but I can walk two minutes down the road to pick up food. Like, they must have made a fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, anyhow, Amsterdam. You went to you were in Amsterdam? Yeah. No way, well, how come? Just holiday? Just for holiday, yeah. Me and uh, two friends from school. Did you go, away? hang on, were you in Amsterdam for metal gigs? Interesting. Hmm. First time yeah. in Amsterdam? First time I've been to Amsterdam. Yeah, first time I've been to the Netherlands at all. Okay, uh, now hang on, hang on. For the uh where 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 is the thing? We have we have a listener. 
from the Netherlands. One listener in the Netherlands. So uh, bearing that person in mind, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down to uh, to Amsterdam. Uh, it was a cool place, and I would go back. <laughs> in depth review, Jesus! But you say you said thumbs up or thumbs down, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I gave that, a brief response. That, that, that is that is entirely fair. What's uh what's what's cost like? Because myself and the captain are looking at going somewhere in September. Um, and we're very conscious about pricing and things like that. And we've kind of written off a good chunk of Europe because of cost. Um, it's fairly expensive. Mm. Like, it'd be probably, like, Dublin expensive. Oh, that's not good. No, it's, so, so it's it's expensive like that. Um, and we stayed in an Airbnb. So that was, it was a little bit pricier than if we'd stayed in a mm. hostel, but not as pricey as if we'd stayed in a hotel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh... What did I do there? I went to museums. Tasty, I drank, yeah, I drank some tasty beers. I wandered around. It's a very pretty set city. Yeah, um, yeah. Like all the old kind of uh, 1600s and 1700s kind of areas. Um, yes, I went to two very good museums. I went to the Maritime Museum. Mm. Yeah. In which I saw uh, loads of stuff. Uh, I went to an ex- ex- exhibition all about whales. Oh, cool. And the relationship between humanity and whales throughout history. That was class. Um, Any interesting uh, tidbits that you've learned that you want to share? Uh, specifically about whales. Specifically about the relationship between humanity and whales over the years. <laughs> uh, well, that they were they were considered as, as monsters for a long time. And now they're seen as sort of like cuddly and fluffy and you can get toys of them. Which would have been unthinkable in the 1600s. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah like naturally, because um, surely there must have been some fear that whales would like sink boats and things like that. So exactly, yeah. yeah. Huh. Um, and they have a replica of an East Indiaman from the 1600s. Oh no, from the actually, I think it is from the 1600s. Yeah, uh, the VOC Amsterdam. So you can go up in the ship and go all around it and see cool. how sailors lived and stuff. That was that was great, you know, me and, and ships and things. Wait, so hang on, like a life-size replica of the thing that you can just go around and explore? Yep. Oh, man, that's cool. That appeals cool. to the Sky Pirate uh, ophile uh, that I am. Uh. Um, they have the, the actual royal barge used by the, the Dutch royal family is in a shed there. You can go in and look at it. Do, does do, do the Netherlands still have a royal family? They do, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I think it's is it Queen Beatrice is the queen. Uh, sorry to our one Dutch listener if I got that wrong. Who is Queen Beatrice? And it's like, dar damn you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, Queen Beatrice resigned. Oh, well, she ab- abdicated. I didn't realize that. Oh, cool. So it's currently King Willem Alexander. Looks like it's a solid name. One of my middle names, Willem. Willem, or well, yeah. Wilhelm. But like that's it's the same yeah. thing. This is this is the Dutch version of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Edgar Bill is your Ed- name. Oh, I have Bill in my name. You do. Oh, you do. that's a little bit cool. Um, <laughs> so that was great. And then they also had a big exhibition about navigational instruments, and one about maps. Yes. Yeah, so I really like the maps one, um, obviously. Uh, the navigational instruments one was funny because they had like the sextant and what that did and the astrolabe and all, all these different things and what they did. Um, and they mentioned that, the, 
longitude was a big problem, how to calculate longitude. Because latitude, handy out. All you have to do is look at the sun and take the, the angle. Absolutely handy. Mm-hmm. But calculating uh, longitude, very, very difficult. Uh, and of course, it was uh, the chronometers invented in England in the 1700s that solved that problem. But the Dutch and the English were huge rivals at that point in history. Uh, and when I was in England last year, I saw like three different things about clocks and timekeeping, three different exhibits. And all of them made a big deal, especially the one in Greenwich, made a big deal about the invention of the chronometer and the, the solution to the longitude problem. And here in the Maritime Museum in Amsterdam, it was literally just a paragraph on a case. It was like, then the longitude problem was solved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know Do you know how it was solved? Do you know what? What's the tech yes. needed to, to, to measure longitude? An extremely accurate uh, clock, which wasn't affected by being moved around and wasn't affected by heat and changes in temperature. And so what you did was you took your... You set that to the time of your home port. So you set that to London or whatever. And then when you were away, you would take the local noon and you would see what the difference between local noon and noon on the chronometer was because you would have the accurate time to your home port and then you could calculate what distance you had travelled around the world. Hmm. That's interesting. That seems like a really sort of, it seems like a no-brainer sort of solution. Um, as often so many uh, advancements are there, like they're really simple when you think of it. Um, No, like the the solution was always obvious, but it was just making a good enough clock. Ah, Okay, okay, I see, I see. Do, yeah. do, do you know what this reminds me of? Uh, in Only Fools and Horses. Uh, n- no. What? Okay. okay was, that just, end... was that just a random guess? No, because at the end of the like series of Only Fools and Horses, of the original like long run of the series back in like the late 90s or whatever, it, they they have, they find a chronometer. Oh, no, not, not okay. Only Fools and Horses. I never got into okay. that program. Um, no, it, it reminds me of uh, Flat Earthers, right? I, I have mm-hmm. been watching way too many Flat Earth videos because through looking at plate tectonics, um, I inadvert- and, and like thinking about them hypothetically and stuff, I inadvertently made my way down the Flat Earth rabbit hole because like I, I obviously on YouTube, all the metadata is somewhat similar and sort of jazz. And I can't help but watch it because it's, you know, you know, you, you, it's almost like a, a, a want to be sadistic to yourself. You're just kind of like, I'm just going to watch it and feel terrible about the world. Um, and I, it's like, I was watching these things and I was just like, but so many of your arguments, just like, if they were true, like literally so much of what we know about the world would not exist. And this idea about the chronometer and taking the time of local noon and things like that and calculating the sun's angle. Like, if it was a flat world, it's literally not going to do that. So, like, in in order to accept this flat earth hypothesis that you push so hard, and there's a huge community of people pushing it, it's like we have to, like, just... We have to ignore all of maritime invent- uh, uh, innovations. And it's like, it's just, <laughs> it just, it just, it just drives me nuts. Like it's awful. And it drives me nuts as well, because like at some stage I'd like to do a flat earth video. And like, it's, it's, I don't like that they've spoiled it for us that are doing it in a good manner. Like I'm doing it in a sort of like fun, hypothetical thought experiment. Um, yeah. But like now I feel bad about even trying to publish a flat earth video because someone will come along 
and might be all like, see, proof. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, you see, you've, what you've done there is you've just completely misunderstood reality. Um, so anyway, it just, it, it, when you were describing about all that sort of, it reminded me of that. And I, I, I like, I feel like just turning around and being all like, just, just, just go to that museum and look at the chronometer. Just, 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 just do that. And then, and then tell no, me about the that. The chronometer was faked by NASA, you see. Yes. Do you know what my favorite thing is? Gravity doesn't exist. Like in order for 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 yeah, their <laughs> thanks, Bill. I was confused there. Um, <laughs> but in order for their hypotheses to to work, they have to dismiss gravity, and they just dismiss it. They just kind of go, "Look, we we believe gravity doesn't exist." It's like, but that's not that's not a model of the world. That's fitting. That's like only cherry picking. I, I realize I'm speaking to the qu- tre- preaching to the choir here, but it's 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 cherry picking the stuff that confirms your theory about the world, and it's just yeah, it drives me nuts. And then you start with the conclusion and work backwards. Yeah, exactly, which is not what you should be doing. Uh, the the yeah, and then their thing about like uh, they accept that everything else around us is spherical, like Mars is spherical. The sun is spherical, but the earth isn't. And it's just like, you just it's just the most broken, broken chain of logic. It's just, oh, it's just, it's so infuriating. It's just, sorry, sorry. It's awful. Anyhow, Amsterdam. It's, it's not great. Um, so yeah, so that was the, that was the Maritime Museum. That was pretty sweet. Um, and the other one that I went to was the Van Gogh Museum. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, uh, kind of a dick in Van his early work. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, all right, this is Edgar, another one of Edgar's controversial takes here. I think part of being a borderline genius creative person almost invariably means that you're a bit of a dick. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I get that. But this like is stuff I hadn't seen before. He, he has all this early work which is like painting of peasants, paintings of peasants. And uh, he really idealized the peasant lifestyle and they were being so close to the earth. And he thought it was you know, more noble and more true and stuff, uh, which is, first of all, really patronizing and really classist. Mm. He was like from a, a middle class family and, you know, he was supported by his family for most of his life. You know, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but, to, you know, to have that, and say, oh, but the peasants, they have the they have the real life. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of rubbed me a bit the wrong way. And then he has this famous painting, which I hadn't seen before, called The Potato Eaters, which is a, a painting of a, a peasant meal. And it's totally different to the stuff he's famous for. It's it's way, it's earlier, and it's way more like a, it's like, it's like way like pre-impressionist stuff. Oh, I know it. Um, I know it. You know the painting? Yeah, yeah. My, like, my, they're, they're, my father was a massive Van Gogh fan. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So this, this is this. I I've seen a lot of his work uh, through all the books that my father bought and things like that. And I remember as a young kid being really surprised, being like, "What? When did Van Gogh go a little bit crazy? Like, when did he adopt his kind of more impressionistic style?" Um, because it was mad, baby Edgar, seeing the more traditional work of his youth, and then the more kind of like out there uh, work of his later years. But yes, I'm aware of the potato years. Yeah, and like. They're like they're like caricatures. They're they're given these kind of like grotesque, exaggerated features, and I don't know, just something really rubbed it the wrong way. Something really rubbed me the wrong way about it. Then then his later stuff I like a lot, um, 
uh, and I kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm quite ignorant about art a lot of the time, but I got a lot out of the trip. But the best thing I saw wasn't by Van Gogh. Hmm. It was a sculpture by a French sculptor. I'll get his name here now. Uh, uh, Jules Dalou, or Jules Dalou, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, and it was uh, part of the uh, Museum about Van Gogh's early uh, influences. And it was a sculpture called Tall Peasant. And it was like a life-size bronze sculpture of like a middle-aged man who had clearly been working all his life. And it just had incredible detail on it. Uh, so yeah, deadly sculptor that uh, if you're interested in art, you should look up. Oh, wow, yeah. Did you, did you look up that one? Yeah. Well, I, I I mean, like, well, this is called Peasant by Jules Deleu. Let me see, Tall Peasant. Is, is, it, a, is it a man standing with arms crossed? Uh, he's rolling up his sleeve. Yeah, I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it the the work again. I I know nothing really about art, but the work around the clothing is really good. Yes, like that's and really detailed. It's it's incredible, isn't it? And his 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 arms. If you get up close to him, like his arms, are, like the the veins are done in incredible detail, and his face is amazing, and his fingernails are an incre- are incredible detail. Do, do you want to know an interesting story about me that I may not have told you? Yeah, please. I once moonlighted as a bronze sculpturist. What? Yeah. <laughs> like, legitimately. I, uh, so, a little bit of bragging here, and I'm really sorry. When I was younger, I won a national art competition. Yeah, yeah. For a painting, yeah. right, that I have yet to get back from the Texaco company. Texaco. Man, that's gone. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I know. Texaco just hoarded the They paintings. sold it. They sold it and they used they used the funds to murder union leaders in the third world. Yeah, probably. I feel ashamed for contributing to this. Uh, Texaco were like the sponsors of of this art competition. In any case, so I won this thing for my age group. I think it was like 15 or whatever. And I got a couple of hundred quid out of it. And I put that money into making a bronze sculpture of a clay thing that I had done in, in, in art class. So I spent... I think the entirety of one summer, uh, effectively living, not sleeping, but spending all my days at this kind of like artist commune, um, up north in the county where I, where I live, uh, learning how to work with bronze and things like that. And it was it was it was really really cool. It was a really fun Sweet. time, uh, and I did I had a hand in doing everything. Like uh, th- some of the more like uh, intricate stuff, like uh, I didn't do, but I was given a chance to like help pour the bronze. I was given a chance to do some welding, uh, like make making of all the casts. Uh, I helped out the main artist dude, like running little errands for him and things like that, and doing more more of the menial work. So it was really cool. I felt like a real kind of like apprentice, like artisan. It was really cool. Um, and I sweet. and I believe that sculpture still exists. It is a, a, a like embarrassingly, it's a sculpture of a pig uh, that has that is sitting in a uh, like a a wooden basket, uh, and the wooden basket is smashed, and the pig is all like dumped out on the floor, and he has a big embarrassed look on his face because he broke the basket. Uh, it, it's that not, sounds amazing. It's not exactly high art, uh, nor that is it sounds. That sounds great. <laughs> no, it's it. No, the sculpture itself, like the sculpture itself, isn't great because, like, I went, I went in, I went in there and was like, uh, "What's called? I'd like to do the bronze thing. I have this thing. I'll do that." Um, and then the guy was like, like the main artist guy was like, "Okay, 
yeah, you can do that. Uh, but he kind of sensed that, like, I wasn't a sort of farm sort of person. And he was kind of like, this isn't really your shtick, is it, though? And I was like, you know, not really. And he was like, okay, I'll tell you what. You make the pig. And then in your spare time, uh, let's have a go at making a wax sculpture of something that you actually really like. And we'll turn that into bronze, too. Uh, and the thing I really liked was a, it was basically a demon uh, arising out of a lava pool. Uh, and I made that into a bronze sculpture as well. Uh, so yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's my, my moonlighting as a, uh, as a sculpture, a sculpturer, sculpturer, sculptor, sculptor, sculptor. Um, and a and demon arising out of a lava pool, a demon, like a very, very angsty teenager. Cause again, I was like 15 yeah, yeah. at the time. Yeah. And then in a sad turn of events, was, was this before or after you played in a thrash metal band? This was, I would, I would say during. <laughs> of course it was probably during, yeah. <laughs> I needed to create an idol to bring to our gigs I don't know man um, but then in a sad turn of events how uh, the way it all ended uh, really badly actually was that the artist commune was uh, shut down because of uh, lots and lots and lots of asbestos oh Jesus and they all had to abandon and they just uh, no, it just didn't exist anymore uh, and then they most of them died in a horrific car accident uh, oh God! So it was it was real kind of like the universe has it in for them, so to speak. Um, mm. They just like it was it was all fun and games, and then just like life went terrible. So uh, so yeah, which is is kind of mad. And but the guy I worked for was insanely gifted. Like his sculptors, his sculptures were amazing, and his shtick was uh, he did animal stuff. Uh, but they were really modern takes on animals. Like he wasn't trying to like replicate. Uh, make it a photo real version of animal it would like be these abstract animals but his shtick was that he hated anything that looked uh handmade so like like various it's like some sculptors will deliberately put in like fingerprints and you know gouge marks to make it look like yeah. crafted by a human but he was like he sought like almost apple level of kind of simplicity of form and he mm -hmm. would make like these elephants that were effectively just giant spheres made out of bronze and there was not bronze and there was not like a single imperfection on the surface it was like meticulously crafted and beautifully shined and polished and it was just it was amazing like he, he his name was damien and he he had a huge huge bearing on my uh, aesthetic tastes now like i really like minimalism largely because of damien um hmm. so yeah there, anyway sorry i'm going on too long that was my story uh, we go back to amsterdam <laughs> No, dude, that was class. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, it's not something that comes up in conversation very often. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so overall, enjoyed Amsterdam, yeah? I did, yeah. And I went to some music as well. I went to see the Concertgebouw Orchestra. I, 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 these are... Oh, they're like a, a huge, huge orchestra. Um, like really world class in Amsterdam. Okay, cool. What were they playing? They did the Shostakovich second violin concerto. Okay. And Stravinsky's Firebird. So, oh, you know, very, a very nice. A very sad Russian program. <laughs> Is there anything else other than sad Russian music? You know? Uh, German music. I like sad German music. There's German music that's uh, not just sad, but kind of bombastic and sad, I'm sure. There is. Mahler. Mahler helps with that. <laughs> uh, sorry, classical music podcast here. Jesus. Um, oh, here. I, this is probably not going to make the show uh, because this is turned into a lengthy green room. But just the thing I wanted to, to talk about. Uh, Do you watch Adam Neely's newest video? 
the interview one or the irrational time signatures? Irrational one? time signatures. Yeah. That is the single greatest explanation of irrational time signatures I have ever heard. Yeah, that's, yeah, I guess. It's like succinct, to the point, like really simple. Literally anyone, even if you're not a musician, can understand it and completely demystifies it. Because like, admittedly, I didn't understand uh, irrational time signatures until I watched that video. Because I... Oh, really? Had, yeah, yeah, I had only seen them in the context of this British composer for the listeners called uh, Brian Fernihu. And okay. he he had a way of dealing with them uh, as metric modulations, like as uh, different times, like different, t- they acted in different temporal spaces. And that was really confusing. But then when, I, mm-hmm. when the Adam Neely video came down, I was just basically like, take a whole note, divide it into 12 parts. There you go. You have a 12 base thing. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That is, that is brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was really good. I'm really, I'm really am for succinct, uh, succinct instructional videos, and that was one of them. I thought it was fantastic. He make good content. He does. He could do with less gig vlogs, but you know, you can't have everything in the world. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So I think that's that's the the majority of my my trip to Amsterdam. It was a cool place, and I would like to go back. There's more museums I would like to go to. Cool. Cool. I, I would like to go there too uh, at some stage. Uh, again, given budgets involved, I don't think it's going to be a holiday mm-hmm. destination this year. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, okay, that was an extremely lengthy green room. Do you want to wrap it up? Uh, yeah, do you, not, do you want to cover any of the things you have in the in the show notes there? No, that I've covered everything. Cool. Okay, uh, yeah. Okay, so Bill, I will see you next post next video. You certainly will. So that could be two weeks, could be three weeks, could be a month. I don't know. Uh, and I look forward to it. And I look forward to seeing all of Artifexy again. Until next time, Edgar, Edgar out. out.